Okay, I'm, um, I'm trying an experiment, which is probably not going to work, but I'm still going to try it, which is um, I'm going to see about recording these classes for if, if people have missed them. It might be possible to podcast them. It probably won't, and if people take it as an excuse to miss them, then I'll just stop. Um, but if people, every year people are saying, oh, I missed your class, what did you say, blah, 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 as if they cared. Um, so now um, you can find out if you need to miss a class. But as I say, if, if this becomes a substitute for coming, um, then I just won't do it. Um, but we'll try. We'll see what happens. Um, okay, we're going to get to Richard II um, in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about at least one of the sonnets um, that I distributed last time. So if you have either the handouts or I assume your complete Shakespeare with you, um, you should turn to Sonnet 73. And Sonnet 73 is um, one of the more famous ones. Um, and it's worth thinking about the, the two sonnets I actually wanted people to um, look at on the first class were Sonnet 73 and Sonnet 129. Um, we just won't get to Sonnet 129, but um, at some point you may want to reread it for yourself. Um, that's the one that begins, the expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Um, and that's the cleanest part of the sonnet. Um, but Sonnet 73 is famous um, and with good reason. Um, and I think it makes a good introduction both to the theme of time, which I said was the theme if there were one theme in Shakespeare, um, and in particular to the way those issues are brought up from the start um, and brought up in Richard II. Um, so I'll read it and then um, we'll just talk about it briefly and then we'll go right into Richard II. Um, it's Shakespeare conventionally and I think properly the way to talk about um, these, the first 124, I think it is, sonnets um, are Shakespeare sonnets to the person always, always called the young man. Um, that is, Shakespeare is in love with a man who, as we see um, from Sonnet 73, as well as many others, is substantially younger than he is. Um, one of the stories that the sonnet tells is how um, Shakespeare was also in love with a person conventionally called the Dark Lady. Um, dark because he talks about the, co the dark color of her hair in one sonnet, and Lady because she's a she. Um, and one of the stories that the sonnet tells is how Shakespeare, in love with both of these um, attractive people, um, kind of gets unpleasantly vamped by both of them when they start having an affair with each other. Um, and he objects to this, which doesn't quite seem kosher, because given the fact that he's having sex with both of them, it's not like he's being particularly um, uh, monogamous. And yet, he objects to the fact that they're not being monogamous either. Um, and he knows that this isn't consistent on his part. And one of the ironies about the sonnets that he's interested in is the inconsistency. At any rate, Sonnet 73 is one of the um, uh, least painful sonnets to the young man. 
Um, and in it, Shakespeare is talking about um, how he's feeling old. And he begins, that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So how many people have studied this sonnet before, have done it before, somewhere or other? Um, for how many people is it at least familiar? Um, yeah, it's the kind of thing that you sometimes get like cheesy soul music as a background. Um, um, it's a great sonnet. So we'll just paraphrase a little bit. Um, the first stanza paraphrased brutally is something like, if you look at me, you can see that it's the autumn of my life. Um, the time of year that I represent or the time of year that you can get a sense of by looking at me is that time when yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. That is, it's bare trees as winter is coming. The winds are rising and causing the boughs to shake. Um, and the leaves are almost all gone. Not entirely. It's not absolutely pure. It's not a stark winter landscape because we get a correction where none or few do Hang, yellow leaves or none or few. Um, yellow leaves is an image that Shakespeare likes in Macbeth. Macbeth is going to say, my way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. That is, that's what has become of Macbeth. It's the time of yellow leaves, which is to say the time when things aren't over yet but they're almost over. So what Shakespeare is doing is comparing himself to that time of year, um, doing it in a very interesting way because what he's saying is, if you want to know about what the year looks like, if you don't have very great familiarity with the cycle of seasons, look at me. And that's a strange and surprising reversal from, and no one really notices this reversal, but I draw your attention to it. It's a strange and surprising reversal from a more standard idea and what we kind of take from this idea, which is um, if you want to see where I am in my life, look at the cycle of the seasons. You're familiar with the cycle of the seasons. Well, that's where I am. But what he's doing is he's saying, look at me to understand how time works rather, in this case, how the year works, rather than look at time and how time works to understand what's happening to me. That's an interesting and important converse that you're getting in this sonnet. It's a, the sonnet is not what it seems to be at first only a description, a self-expression on Shakespeare's part, but it's a lesson about time. You're young. You don't know what time is like. Indeed, you know so little about what time is like that I have to tell you a little bit about how the year itself works. Obviously, he knows, the young man knows the cycle of the seasons, but he doesn't 
take their lesson sufficiently to heart. And what Shakespeare is saying is, look at me to get a sense of what the cycle of the seasons really means. That yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. And you, you can see this confirmed a little bit in the reversal in that line, the boughs shake against the cold, as though the tree itself is shivering to warm itself up, when in fact it's the wind, the cold wind of the oncoming winter that's causing the boughs to shake. It's not that the boughs are shaking against the cold, it's that the boughs are shaking, you could almost say, with the cold. It's the cold that is shaking them. But there's still an image here of trying to hold on to the tree's independence, to the bough's independence. Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Um, this was an image, the bare ruined choirs was an image very, very, very ubiquitous in England at the time. When Henry VIII became king of England and when Henry VIII took England um, into Protestantism, one of the things that he did was he seized all the monasteries for the kingship. And the reason England has so many picturesque ruins is that Henry VIII ruined them. Um, he took everything the church owned and took it for himself. He set himself up as head of state. Some of you will know this, but I'll just give you the briefest version of it because it's important to Richard II. Um, Henry, you will know, liked divorcing. Um, and one reason that he liked divorcing or he wanted to divorce is that he wanted a male heir. Another reason was that um, he didn't stay very satisfied very long um, with anyone that he was married to. Um, the Pope and the Catholic Church was against it. Um, and finally, um, the Pope wouldn't grant Henry a divorce that he wanted. Um, so he said, but look, the Pope may be the Bishop of Rome and rule um, because Jesus said to Peter, the first Bishop of Rome, thou art Peter and upon this rock I found my church. Um, Peter, you will remember, means stone as in our word petrify to make into stone. Um, but kings also rule by divine right. And I have as divine an entitlement. I am the Lord's anointed, just as King David and King, um, King Saul were the Lord's anointed in the book of Kings. I am the Lord's anointed. I, too, am a sacred figure, not only the pope, but the king of England or the king of any European power who rules by divine right is a sacred figure. And I will start my own church with myself as head of that church. And one of the things I will grant myself is the right to divorce, which he then did. And another thing that I will grant myself is all the church's lands, which he then did. And um, he ruined and destroyed the monasteries in order to loot them. Um, so lots of ruined choirs. These are choirs in churches that have been looted. Lots of ruined choirs all over the place. So it's an image um, in an interesting way that history makes it into this poem and makes it as something that happens, is that beautiful buildings decay 
get destroyed, um, become ruined. Um, the word ruin, by the way, means fall. Um, our sense of ruin as um, a broken up um, or destroyed thing um, has much more strongly for Shakespeare than for us a sense of something that has fallen down. Um, that's the Latin root of the word ruin, is to fall, something that has fallen down. So these are things that have fallen as the leaves have fallen, um, and falling is what happens in the course of time. Second stanza. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away. That is, black night eventually takes away even the twilight after the sun has set, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. So the second stanza looks like um, a paraphrase or a repetition in different imagery, but, but not that different, of the first stanza. The first stanza is the time of year, autumn. But now we go more tightly focused on the time of day. In me, thus is the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west. So the thing to notice here is a kind of narrowing of imagery, even as what the imagery is about is the narrowing of time, or, or to put it um, maybe even more sharply, a narrowing of the time imagery, which itself is imagery of the narrowing of time. In the first stanza, we may say to ourselves, OK, so it's autumn, but a year is a long time. And it's still, even if it's autumn, it's not yet winter. It's still you know, as long as three months before it's the dead of winter. He still has lots of time. Maybe he's um, on the back nine. But still, a year is a reasonable amount of time to think of as death not being imminent. But then in the second stanza, we're not looking at that scale of things anymore. We've gone in the first stanza from the scale of a lifetime to the scale of a year. Now in the second stanza, we go from the scale of a year to the scale of a day. In me thou seest the twilight of such day. We go from that time of year to the twilight of such day. So it's very late in the day. The sun has set. There's only twilight left, but by and by, black night will take that away too. Death's second self that seals up all in rest. And now it feels like time is short. Night is coming. Still, as Antony will say in Antony and Cleopatra, you can burn the night with torches. Night still allows for the possibility of a last party, as Antony says, a last festivity, a last um, really bright experience of life. Life may only be the length of a day, but it's not midnight yet. It's only twilight. But then we get to the third stanza. Because what you would do is light a fire at sunset, especially if it's winter. Because what we're also feeling is that there's a kind of pyramid of um, experience here. It is now we can feel 
an autumn day, late autumn because there are very few leaves or none or few upon the trees. It's a late autumn day, but it's also the twilight of that late autumn day. These aren't separate images. These are image, images that build upon each other. So it's twilight of a late autumn day. And that day is fading. And now we get the third stanza where perhaps it's the fire that you light because it's cold and dark on that late autumn day. And now we're down only to not days, but hours. And me, thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. And that image is a powerful one. It's not simply a kind of repetition in a more intense mode of the previous two. Or maybe it is, but it brings out something the previous two that we haven't seen before. The fire lies on the ashes of its own youth. So its youth was the fire when it was consuming the logs, the wood that was burning. And those logs and wood, of course, should remind us of the bare branches of the trees in the first quatrain. Um, now the wood is burning away. These aren't bare branches shaking against the cold. This is wood that's been burnt to ashes. So the fire is lying on the ashes of its own youth, and it's created those ashes by burning. Being alive is burning away the thing that keeps you alive. So the fire is now lying on its own ashes, glowing now, not flaming, but glowing. So it's as though the glowing of the sunset that you've seen in the twilight of such day is now turning into a much smaller glowing, the glowing of the embers. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire. The, liar, the fire will go out in its own ashes. That's the deathbed whereon it must expire. Um, again, um, we're not doing Othello in this class, but one of the greatest moments in Othello is when Othello tells Desdemona whom he's about to murder. Um, he says, you should pray because you are lying on your deathbed. Um, that is their marriage bed. He is now calling her deathbed. And she says, of course it's my deathbed, but not yet. That is, of course I intend only to share your bed for the rest of my life. Yes, the marriage bed is the deathbed, but not yet. However, it is yet in Othello. Um, and it is yet now for Shakespeare in this sonnet. As the deathbed were on it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. The very wood or the substance of the wood, the hydrocarbons, to use a word that Shakespeare coined, not. Um, but the hydrocarbons that make up the wood now turn into the ashes which choke the fire. So the fire burns to ashes, and the ashes now choke the fire. 
So again, we see this intense narrowing of scope in the sonnet. We've gone from a day where you can see that the leaves are yellow, it's an autumn day, it's a blustery day, but it's daytime, to a sunset where you see night coming, to a fire which is glowing but about to go out. And that's all that's left. So the sequence of images, not only do they say time is short, but they demonstrate time becoming shorter and shorter. They do something here. The last two lines are going to confirm this, but they do something here that I started talking about in the first class, which is they bring two different orders or scales of time to convergence. That is, what we'll be thinking about again and again is the scale of time that in Hamlet we talked about as twice two months versus two hours. That is to say, Hamlet um, says, my father has been dead for two hours, and Ophelia says, nay, tis twice two months, my lord. So at that point in the play, it's almost as though two different time segments are converging, and they're converging at the moment where Ophelia says, your father died four months ago, and Hamlet says, my father died two hours ago. The two hours are the two hours of the play. The four months are the four months of the story that the play tells. But now those two different scales of time, those two different periods, are after two hours converging into a single period, which is the time of the play. Everything in Shakespeare converges towards the present and towards a present which is the present of the story or the present of the poem or the present of the, of the expressive work that he is doing. So here we've gone from, well, a year is a long time to, okay, it's late in the day, but this sonnet isn't going to take a day to recite, although it may start seeming like that to you to, well, it's now things are actually about to go out. And it's almost as though the time frame that Shakespeare is working with in describing his own lifetime is the time frame of a sonnet, not of a year or of a day, or even of um, a Duraflame log, which, as you know, will last three hours, um, but the time frame of 14 lines. And then the strange couplet, which again, um, people think they know what it means, but I don't think anyone thinks about it enough. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. And the puzzle there, everyone knows what it means. You love well something which is about to die, and that shows you really love me. Um, but that's not quite what those lines are saying. To say that, they would have to say something like, to love that well, it's not going to rhyme, so I apologize, but to love that well, actually it does rhyme, what am I saying? I don't apologize, I take it back. Um, to love that well which must leave the ear long. He's the one who's going, not the young man. The young man is still in that time of year which you would call spring, 
what Cleopatra will call my salad days, when I was green in judgment, cold in blood, when I thought I loved Julius Caesar, back when I was young. The young man has a lot of time. That's something that Shakespeare is insisting on again and again in these sonnets to him. He says, yes, I'm a decrepit father at one point. He says, I look at you and I'm like a decrepit father taking delight to see his son perform the deeds of youth. So the young man has a lot of time and Shakespeare doesn't. And yet the exit, and I choose that word intentionally, that theatrical word intentionally, the exit that these last two lines are describing is the young man's exit, not his. He's not saying, soon I'll be gone and then you'll be sorry. What he's saying is, soon you'll have to leave. Now, there's a lot that can be said and a lot that has been said about that. Um, and there's a lot that can be said about the, about the sonnet. Um, but all I want to insist on here is the way you can see how important, let's call it aesthetic time <coughs> is for Shakespeare. What Shakespeare does again and again and again, what makes him as great a playwright as he is, is he makes you think whatever else has happened, there has been this time that the play brought us to at its end. This experience that the play brings to us at its end, you could say in real time. A play may tell you that 16 or 20 years of events have occurred, but at the very end, all that matters is what's occurring in the present, not in the past and not in the future, but in the present. And the present is the shared time that it's Shakespeare's aim to make available to the characters in the play and to the audience watching them, and to everyone who is having the aesthetic experience of a play. It's we are at this moment having this experience without thinking of this experience in a larger context of future and past. We are bringing everything in our lives down to this experience, the experience of King Lear's death or Hamlet's death, or Theseus and Hippolyta's marriage, or um, Portia and Bassanio's marriage. It's this moment is what's counting, not what comes after, not what came before. That's a hard thing to do, to funnel the tremendous giganticism of human time and of historical time into a moment that a play can hold or into an hour that a play can hold in its last hour. The rhythms of Shakespeare's plays are rhythms where by the time you get to their last hour or so, time has been brought into that scope, that hour. And this sonnet is partly about that, which is here, you have been with me to at this point where we have achieved maximum temporal concentration 
where time has been brought to its point and its peak and its last fading moments and its last fading embers. And that experience is about to end. And then you're going to leave the way you leave a theater. You're going to go back into normal human time. And you're going to leave me the way you might leave some great character in a theater or some great experience. Not that Shakespeare's saying, look how great my characters are, but what he is saying is, look at the amazing thing theater can do, which is to make you feel, while you're feeling it, that this is what matters within time. This is it. This is what matters. And he's saying theater is in that way, like love, loving someone who's going to die, as everyone you love will die, um, but loving them while they're alive. Loving them even if you don't expect them to be alive long. Nevertheless, making the fact that they're alive be what matters. And for Shakespeare, that's what marriage will consistently mean, is making the fact that this person who you're getting married to is alive now, and that the moment of marriage is a moment of life. It's also what death means in Shakespeare. This person who is now dying has something to say. This person who is about to die is not dead yet. And again, to quote Hamlet, the interim is mine. Hamlet, a line we'll look at in Hamlet, um, and which I'll probably repeat many times before we get there, is Hamlet saying, a man's life is no more than to say one. The interim is mine. How long is a lifetime? Well, Hamlet is saying you can't count past the number one. Because whatever number you're counting, all you're really saying is one. Because you're only in the present moment. So when characters die in Shakespeare, it's a whole lifetime that's coming to an end, but it's also the play that's coming to an end. It's also a two or three hour play that's coming to an end. And Shakespeare takes that convergence, and that's what he's doing in the sonnet. He takes the convergence of a lifetime on a three hour period, or the end of a lifetime on the end of a three hour period as what he is writing about how when lives end, they end in three hours, in three hour periods. Or when marriages begin, they begin and bring us to the moment where you live happily ever after as a climax to what's come before, but a climax that becomes the performance of the ceremony. Cere marriage ceremonies in Shakespeare last about as long as they do in real life. That is, we get to the point of marriage. And everything that has led up to that, youth, and all the complications of youth, and adolescence, and all the misunderstandings of courtship, and all the mistakes that people make, all of that finally comes to this moment, here. So what happens in a church, and what happens in a theater, can converge and become coincident with each other. And Sonnet 73 is one of the sonnets where he thinks through 
that convergence of different scales of time as a way of increasing intensity so that as time gets short, intensity grows great. There's a formula he invented, PV equals NRT. Um, no, that wasn't him either. But it's the greater the pressure, um, the smaller the volume of time that that pressure um, is in, or the smaller the volume of time, I should put it this way, the greater the pressure. Um, and it's that pressure that he's aiming at in his plays, including, segue, Richard II. Um, so let's go to the beginning of Richard II. How many people are liking it, reading it? Um, and how many people are blasé about it? It's okay. Um, take their names down. Um, and how many people are thinking, this is not what I meant? Okay, that's good. Are you really not? No one is thinking this is not what I meant? All right, well, um, Richard II is a great play. It's also a fairly early play on Shakespeare's part. Um, one reason we're doing it is um, that's, that a theme, a, a theme in this course, not a theme in Shakespeare, but a theme in this course, is we're going to see how Shakespeare got less and less interested in um, a kind of narrative <coughs> perfection and narrative symmetry. Shakespeare early is like, <coughs> excuse me, an incredibly good dancer who hits every mark and does every step perfectly. Shakespeare later is like an incredibly good dancer who no longer has to do anything perfectly because everything that matters, he's internalized absolutely. Um, what you can see in Richard II is a play of almost perfect construction, and it's something we'll admire in this play, um, but it's also something that you can see with very great interest how Shakespeare realizes that perfect construction is something you need to know how to do, the way Picasso needed to know how to draw, but that you also need to know how to leave behind when you have other and even, even more important things to say. On the other hand, Richard II really is about all the themes that we'll find in Shakespearean tragedy, and in particular, the theme of time. Um, it's also about something that we started talking about on Monday, um, but that we'll talk about more and more, which is um, the theme of two different orders of human action and human interest that Shakespeare is always interested in, and that we can say very simply are public versus private. Shakespeare had the good fortune, um, even if it was bad fortune for the world, but it was good fortune for Shakespeare. Shakespeare had the good fortune of living in a time when politics was always also familial when who got to be king was determined by who was the child of the previous king. Fortunately, those days are over, sort of, a little bit. Um, but in Shakespeare's day, of course, they were central. Um, what this then means is political stories are also personal stories. What happens in families also affects 
what happens in the country or in the nation as a whole. Um, what happens behind the scenes always in politics affects what happens um, in the public eye, but in Shakespeare what happens behind the scenes um, is recognizably what happens in families. Um, everyone going to a Shakespeare play can be interested in it, or at least Shakespeare was writing for an audience that can be interested in it for at least two reasons. Because the history and the politics are interesting. And because these are people who are engaged in private life struggles, private life conflict, private life love and hatred with each other that parallels and maps onto the same troubles and conflicts and love and hatred that everyone experiences. When Arthur Miller writes Death of a Salesman and makes it a tragedy about a low man, as you'll all know, Willie Lohman, um, not a Shakespearean character, and yet still named Will, which I think is part of the point. Um, when Miller does that, he's saying, yeah, tragedy is about private life. Um, but it's already about private life in Shakespeare. Now, Shakespeare is interested in two versions of public life, or he's interested in mapping two versions of public life onto each other, and therefore two versions of private life onto each other. There's political life is one version of public life. And then there is what actors do on stage, which is another version of public life. Actors are real people who appear on stage as other people. What they do backstage and what they do on stage are different things. And Shakespeare felt and probably was right to feel, that knowing as much as he did about theater, which was an enormous amount, Shakespeare was, um, and I can't insist on this enough, so I'll insist on it now. Shakespeare, unlike almost every great writer, Shakespeare was unbelievably skilled in what he did. Usually, and paradoxically, greatness and skill go counter to each other. Because what makes you great is a kind of originality which takes the place of skill. And what makes you skilled is an aptitude to learn techniques that are given to you. Shakespeare is partly as amazingly great as he is because he is skilled in a way that the highest paid hack is skilled. Most great writers can't do hack work to, shake, to, to save their lives. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald is an example of this. He went to Hollywood. He was awful. Here we have possibly um, the greatest American writer, the, t the novelist of the 20th century, possibly. Couldn't write a movie to save his life. Raymond Chandler, um, the second greatest um, hard-boiled novelist of the 20th century, couldn't write a screenplay to save his life. Hack work is hard if you are, well, it's hard, period, um, but, it's, but it's hard in a, in a particular way if you can actually do something great. Shakespeare was as good at what he did as the greatest hack writers, or as the most skilled hack writers. Um, 
And it's because he had such enormous theatrical skill that he had very powerful insight into the way people could effectively present themselves to audiences. And that insight is therefore political insight. Because presenting yourself to an audience is what politicians do as well. And if you do it well, you might get elected to the Senate from Massachusetts as a Republican. And if you do it badly, you might blow a 30-point lead in the polls as a Democrat. Um, it could happen. I don't know that it will, but it could. Um, but the same skills that politicians have are skills not necessarily that actors have, but that impresarios of theater have. Now, I don't know for a fact that this is true, but I do know that it's true in Shakespeare's world. That is that you will consistently see that the way people gain power in Shakespeare is through, through theatrical skills. And the way people lose power in Shakespeare is through making the kinds of mistakes that actors can make. Um, through overreaching and overacting, or not gauging their audience correctly, or failing to upstage someone that, they, that um, it's their point to upstage, or trying to upstage someone whom they shouldn't be trying to upstage. Shakespeare is really interested in the dynamics of theatrical presentation, not only because he had to be in order to write plays, but because <coughs> he thought these things were interesting on their own, and also that they were very widespread, and that politicians did the same thing. Queen Elizabeth apparently agreed with him. I already quoted for you her saying to her advisors that she was Richard II, and by Richard II she meant Shakespeare's Richard II, not the historical Richard II, but the character in this play. Um, it's also the case that Elizabeth said that princes were like actors on a stage who had to get their audience's favor through the way they acted. Later you will see that Richard himself is described as um, someone who gets booed like a bad actor after a good actor has left the stage. Um, people say, look, there was Henry, and he was a great actor, and everyone cheered him. And then Richard came, and everyone booed him because they didn't want to see Richard. They wanted to see Henry. Um, it was as though when a well-graced actor leaves the stage and another actor comes on and the audience boos, thinking his prattle to be tedious, so did the audience boo Richard. So we have in Shakespeare, and this will be consistently true in his plays in one way or another, from the first play we're looking at, Richard II, and indeed the first plays that he wrote, to the last play that we're looking at, The Winter's Tale, and indeed to the last plays that he wrote, we have consistent interest in Shakespeare's part on what happens in private and what happens in public, where what happens in private is what happens among families, and what happens in public is what happens in politics, but where what happens in private is also what happens between actors who are thinking about how they're going to appear in public when they, when they present themselves to the public, and what happens in public is what happens on stage. 
Shakespeare is always bringing those four elements pairwise into relationship with each other. Now, in Richard II, we can see this if we start not with Act I, Scene 1, which we'll get to in a moment, but with Act I, Scene 2. So if you turn to Act I, Scene 2, if you have the red Norton, this is page 988. Um, but just look for Act One, Scene 2. What we have is John of Gaunt speaking to the Duchess of Gloucester. The Duchess of Gloucester is the widow of Thomas Woodstock. Now, if you're confused, and there's no reason you shouldn't be, as to what's going on as far as the families go in this play, the Norton gives you a Shakespearean genealogy on its end papers here. Can you all see this? So see here where it's at. No. Um, you should have that genealogy if you have the Norton. The Riverside has it as well. I think most um, decent editions of Shakespeare will have that um, genealogy. Um, what you need to know from the genealogy, Shakespeare actually doesn't get the genealogy right, um, and the Norton gives you Shakespeare's fictional genealogy. Um, if you have the Riverside, it gives you the actual genealogy with some parentheses about where Shakespeare was confused. Um, what you really need to know for Richard II is that King Edward III, whose dates are 1312 to 1377, had seven sons. Those sons were Edward, the Prince of Wales, who died before his father. He died in 1376, and his father, Edward III, died in 1377. But he was the firstborn son of Edward III. He then, his second son was William of Hatfield, whom we never have to talk about again. Um, Shakespeare actually did not like talking about characters named William. Um, it's an interesting fact about him. Um, it's as though that made him nervous, having to write stories about people named William. And um, there are a couple of Williams in Shakespeare's plays, and they're weird. Um, <laughs> Lionel, Duke of Clarence, who is not going to matter to this play, but will matter if you read the Henry IV plays. John of Gaunt, whom we're about to see um, speaking. He's old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster, to quote the first line of the play. Um, the Duke of York, who's going to be a character in this play. Thomas of Woodstock, who is dead when the play starts, but whose death is important. And look at that, another William who never gets mentioned ever again, William of Windsor. Um, so the characters who matter here, the three sons of Edward who matter, are the Black Prince, Edward Prince of Wales, who predeceased his father, but was the firstborn son of Edward III, John of Gaunt, who is actually his fourth son, and um, Edmund of Langley, the Duke of York, his fifth son. Um, Edward, the dead Prince of Wales, matters because he is Richard's father. So Richard is the firstborn son of the firstborn son of Edward III. John of Gaunt matters because he is Henry's father, Henry Bolingbroke's father. So Bolingbroke is Richard's first cousin, and John of Gaunt is Richard's uncle, his father's third brother. And York is his father's fourth brother, also his uncle. So Gaunt and York are brothers, and Richard 
and Gaunt's son, Bolingbroke, are cousins. And Bolingbroke is the second grandson, the second surviving grandson of Edward III, which means that if by chance something should happen to Richard, who doesn't have any children, which is uh, made very clear several times in the course of this play, guess who is next in line to the throne? Bolingbroke. Um, so that's the situation when the play starts. Now, Richard became king of England. Does anyone know how old he was? Ten, when he was ten years old. Um, not a great age to try to run a country. Um, my nine-year-old son actually thinks it is, but um, he could be right. You could do worse than him. Um, we have done worse than him. Um, but when you become king before you reach the age of majority, what happens is um, important older advisors actually run things. So the people <coughs> who ran the kingdom were Richard's uncles. And this is not a comfortable place for Richard to be. People who've seen Shakespeare plays before this, that is in Shakespeare's audience, will know that the previous uncle who ran England in Shakespeare's history plays happened to make it the case that his boy nephews um, died in the tower where he'd put them for their protection. Um, violently. No one quite knows how. Um, except that he had them killed. At which point he became king. So when you have a nephew with uncles, and the nephew is powerless, and the uncles are running the kingdom, and those uncles themselves have children, um, that nephew is in some peril, and there's also very great tension between that nephew as he gets older and hits adolescence, and the uncles who are running things. So what happens is Richard um, becomes a young man, and he starts saying, look, I'm king of England, I should be running things, and the uncles are saying, isn't that sweet? Um, that you think you should be running things. Um, but of course, Richard being the official and anointed, divinely right ruler of England, um, starts insisting on his own power, but also gets a lot of people backing him. Um, the teabaggers, you could call them, of the time. Um, because he will be the accepted king of England, and anyone who backs him will have power once he actually gets power. So what happens is Richard comes into very great conflict with his uncles, and he has one of his uncles murdered secretly. Um, kings do this, and the reason they do this is because anyone who thinks you can rule a country because you're king only because you're king, because people will do whatever the king tells them to do, is not going to be king very long. Anyone who believes that is going to meet with an accident very, very quickly. In order even for a king to stay in power, the king has to manipulate his image. The king has to be 
a figure with a lot of backing, but one of the things that a king can sell in order to get that backing is the fact that a certain portion of the country is going to think the king does have magical powers to order whatever he wants. So that's the public-private thing again. That is, there are the naive, younger people in the country who think he's a king, whatever he wants, people will do. All he has to do is say the word, and it will happen. And the fact that, let's say, 20% or 30% of the country believes this, that's a powerful tool in the hands of a king. That 20 or 30% of the country believes that the king has a kind of magical political power to make it so, as Jean-Luc Picard says. That all he has to do is give an order and everyone will immediately obey it. Now, that's simply not true. And if you believe it's true, you're in trouble. And if you come to believe it's true, you're in trouble. Which is what's going to happen in Richard II. And what is a very good story is when people start believing in their own power, they stop being careful. And when they stop being careful, they lose. That's a story that Shakespeare is telling in Richard II. It's a story that Shakespeare tells in Richard III. It's a story Shakespeare tells a lot. If you believe in your own theatrical notices, if you believe in your own theatrical appearances, you're in trouble. But you may get there by starting out very shrewd. And Richard does start out very shrewd. And among the things that he knows from the start, or among the advice that he takes from the start, is the advice to get rid of the resistance of those uncles who are resisting him. So he arranges for, in reality, it's not quite clear what happens, but in the play, he arranges for the murder of his uncle. Um, we can't feel too bad about it. It's a little bit like Al Pacino and The Godfather arranging for the murder of one of his enemies. It's a blood sport. Everyone is killing everyone else. It's kill or be killed. But he does arrange for the murder of his uncle. And by doing that, he consolidates power. You may not know this. You're not expected to know this at the beginning of the play. Um, about half the audience will know it, the educated half, and half the audience won't know it or will know something about it. Um, they may know a little bit more about this than um, they would if um, Shakespeare's play wasn't a sequel to something else. But Shakespeare's play is a sequel to a lost play, not by Shakespeare, but a lost play um, by someone else which shows the murder, um, which shows how Richard had Thomas Woodstock murdered. Um, so some parts of the audience will know that this is a sequel to an earlier play, new director, new playwright, but still a sequel. Um, and so they'll know the story behind it. But even if you don't, you can pick it up when you need to, and Shakespeare makes sure you can through Act 1, Scene 2. So John of Gaunt comes in talking with the Duchess of Gloucester, who is the widow of Thomas Woodstock. Um, and they're in the middle of a conversation. And as you'll know, Shakespeare loves doing this. That is, have people enter the stage talking. 
and in the middle of a conversation that we can pick up on or that we can project backwards in time to figure out what it is that he's replying to. <clears throat> so what John of Gaunt says is, alas, the part I had in Gloucester's blood, <coughs> that is, we're, we were blood relations, um, his blood flows through my veins, my blood flows, flew, flowed through his. Alas, the part I had in Gloucester's blood doth more solicit me than your exclaims to stir against the butchers of his life. So we can now figure out what she's just said off stage. We can describe it this way. She, is sim she has just now been soliciting him through her exclaims to stir against the butchers of her husband Gloucester's life. And, and um, Gaunt now says, yes, I understand that. The fact that I'm his brother is even more telling for me than the fact that you want me to do it. However, he goes on, but since correction lieth in those hands which made the fault that we cannot correct, but we are quarrel to the will of heaven, who, when they see the hours ripe on earth, will rain hot vengeance on offenders' heads. So, so far, all we know is that the Duchess of Gloucester has said, my husband's been murdered and you should do something about it. And Gaunt comes in, her brother-in-law um, says, I agree that it's terrible, but it's not a correction that I can make. Correction here is correction like in a house of corrections. That is, it corrects, it makes right cosmic justice. It's not, oh, Richard, you made a mistake. Here, let me correct it for you, um, except in the sense that correcting it would be killing him. Um, it's a correction of cosmic justice. So what he's saying in that line, correction lieth in those hands which made the fault, is that the figure who is in charge of making sure that justice is served is the figure who committed the crime. The figure in charge of making sure that justice is served is the king. The king is the font of justice. We already know that from Act 1, Scene 1, if we don't know it because we're British subjects. We know it from Act 1, Scene 1, when two people come to the king and ask for justice. When both Mowbray and Bolingbroke come to him and each says the other has, has, has acted unjustly and we each of us demand justice. I demand justice against the other. It is the king who is in charge of dealing out justice. But now what Gaunt is saying is, but it's the king who did the crime. So that's not a good situation when the king is also the criminal. It should always be the case that whenever there's a crime, the crime is committed against the king and not by the king. That's why British law cases, you will probably know, um, even today, the name of a British, of a public prosecution or of a public case is the queen versus, let's say, Simon Marmaduke. That's not a real British name, but whatever. Um, it's the queen who is in the case against the malefactor. It is the, the queen 
can never be the malefactor. Um, the whole idea is one side is the head of the government who stands for the justice that has been outraged by the criminal or who the crim stands for the justice that the criminal is accused of having outraged. Um, one way that the United States is shown to be a democracy is in the United States it's not the president versus or the king versus or the head of state versus, it's the people versus. In the US, the people take over the function of the source of justice from the head of state, from the king or queen in Shakespeare's day. Um, this is less of a difference, as we'll see in this play, than it seems at first, but it is a difference that matters. Um, in order to try a king the way in the US we have impeachments, in order to try a king, you would have to have a case called the king versus the king because all cases of this sort are the king versus the accused. In fact, in 1649, there was such a case. We talked about this, we talked about the Puritan Revolution before. In 1649, King Charles I, or in 1648 rather, King Charles I was put on trial by Parliament. And the name of that case was the king versus the king. And that's not quite all the information you need to know. What you need to know is the name of the case was the capital K king versus the lowercase k king. That is to say, yeah, Charles was king, but he was a king. He was a lowercase king. Whereas the king, with a capital K, no person is that. That is an abstract being, the king, that some persons play the role of. So some persons get to be king for a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or even a decade or two. But those who get to do that, they're small k kings when they get to do that. So hold on to the idea of the difference between the king and a king. One way that this still survives in our language, although we don't know it mostly, is that if you know what the word demise means, it's used colloquially to mean death, um, sometimes to mean um, loss of office or something, but colloquially it usually means death. So you can say, <coughs> um, since um, um, the demise of, um, of, I don't know, Richard Nixon, um, there hasn't been um, a, someone who's really been all out for healthcare. Um, and what you would mean is, you know, Nixon, till the end of his life, was, was making speeches where he was calling upon certain things, um, and then he died. But demise actually doesn't mean death. It means putting aside, putting away, um, or being put away from an office. So kings, when you talk about a king's demise, that almost always means that that king has died. 
But the word demise there means not the death of the king, but the transfer of who is king. It's a movement of kingship from one person to another. So the demise is the, is the replacing of a king or the replacing of kingship onto a different person. So the demise of a king is actually the demise of the state, the giving to someone else of the state of being king. You know, you know the chant, the king is dead, long live the king. If you write that correctly, it's the small k, king is dead, long live the, the uppercase k, king. A small k king can die, but the king, uppercase, is never dead. There's always a living king. There is always the living king. A king can die. The king can never die. That's the theory of kingship as a divine state, a divine abstraction that was regnant at the time. However, right now the king is not dead. The king is very much, the small k king is very much the capital K king. And so, Gaunt is saying, you can't have a case where the king accuses himself of the crime that we are against. The Duchess of Gloucester is very unhappy about this, but Gaunt is very clear about it. Correction lieth in those hands which made the fault that we cannot correct, Therefore, let's ask heaven for our help. Put we our quarrel to the will of heaven, not to the will of the king, but to the will of heaven, who, when they see the hours ripe on earth, will rain hot vengeance on offenders' heads. The Duchess of Gloucester now brings any part of the audience that needs to know up to speed by saying, look what happened to the children and grandchildren of Edward, finds brotherhood in thee no sharper spur. Um, look what's happened to those seven children some were naked. Some were naked. Some were killed um, <laughs> through the naked pathway to their lives. I don't know about this uh, recording thing. Um, what he says is, at, what she says at line 25 is, um, that bed, or line 22, that bed, eh, go back a little bit further to line 8, line 17. Line 16, but Thomas, my dear Lord, my life, my Gloucester, one vial full of Edward's sacred blood, one flourishing branch of his most royal root is cracked, and all the precious liquor spilt. That is, the vial is cracked, and all the precious liquor spilt is hacked down. That is, the flourishing branch of his most <coughs> royal root is hacked down, and his summer leaves all faded. That should remind you of Sonnet 73 cracked and hacked down by envy's hand and murder's bloody axe. Ah, gaunt, his blood was thine. That bed, that womb, that metal, that self-mold that fashioned thee made him a man. And though thou livest and breathest, yet art thou slain in him. Thou dost consent in some large measure to thy father's death, in that thou seest thy wretched brother die, who was the model of thy father's Life. Call it not patience gaunt, it is despair. Interesting um, opposition, patience versus despair. 
which you will see a lot of in Shakespeare. When someone accepts suffering, do we call them patient or do we say they've given up? Call it not patience gaunt, it is despair. In suffering thus thy brother to be slaughtered, thou showest the naked pathway to thy life, teaching stern murder how to butcher thee. And then Gaunt replies more clearly still than in his first speech at line 37, God's is the quarrel. For God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused his death. The which, if, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge, for I may never lift an angry arm against his minister. So here Gaunt makes it very clear that he knows who's killed Woodstock. God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight. Substitute here means um, representative. It doesn't mean, oh no, God's not here. We get this seedy substitute. Well, maybe we'll see a film strip. Um, what substitute here means is representative with full power. So God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused Woodstock's death. The which, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge, for I may never lift an angry arm against his minister. So what Gaunt is saying is, I know Richard done it. If you ask who done it, Richard, I know it. Everyone knows it. But he's king, and I will never go against an anointed king. Now, that shows that Gaunt is in that part of a political audience who so believes in the divine right of kings that he will not act behind the scenes to attempt to unseat the king. He's part of that 20% or so. It's one reason that he's still alive, is that he will always show Richard the deference, not the respect. He, on his deathbed, he tells Richard everything he's doing wrong, but he will never take arms against the king. He will never rebel against the king. His brother York is an interesting midway case between Woodstock, who is simply at odds with the king, and Gaunt, who will never, ever lift an angry arm against God's minister. So those are, that's a possible range of attitudes towards the king. In this play, there's one more bifurcation that we have to pay attention to in this play and throughout Shakespeare's career. In this play, there's a generational bifurcation. The older generation, which we can call the gaunt generation, the first word of the play is old. Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster. The older generation shows respect for kingship, for the sacred status of the king in a way that the younger generation does not. The conflict in Shakespeare between the older and the younger generation is something you will find in every single one of his plays. All plays are about conflict, and the conflict in Shakespeare is 
always intergenerational. It's not only intergenerational, but it's always intergenerational. Take a play like Romeo and Juliet, which doesn't seem at all to be about that, but of course it is. The younger generation says, why can't we just get married? And the older generation says, because we come from feuding clans who will fight to the death. In Hamlet, the younger generation is the generation of Hamlet and Laertes and Ophelia. And the older generation is the generation of Claudius and Polonius. There's always conflict between the generations, and the conflict is between a more modern and less superstitious generation and a more primitive and more superstitious generation. A generation that will obey the laws and dictums of religion and a generation that's far more secular. This is probably a perennial fact about generational struggle. Polonius himself, when he's looking at Hamlet, says, when I was young, I was just like him, which is very unlikely. Um, but he says, I myself had felt very great extremity of love like unto this, almost as much as this. Um, but then the older generation gets wise, or what they think of as wise, and the younger generation again opposes them. Um, that intergenerational conflict is really important in Richard II. Richard, like many of you, I think, um, is really good at handling a previous generation. He really knows how to handle them. He knows how far he can go and when not to go any farther. Richard is very shrewd in the way he handles figures like Gaunt and York. York gets really pissed at him before, after Gaunt dies and Richard seizes all his valuables. And York says, you can't do that. This is outrageous what you're doing. This is terrible. Bolingbroke, Henry gets those just as much as you get to be king. If you do that, that's, you're doing something almost suicidal, all of which is true. Um, and Richard says, I don't care what you think. I'm doing it. And then he turns, after York leaves in a huff, he turns to his advisors and says, we're going to go to Ireland, and while we're away, I'm going to put York in charge of the kingdom because I trust him. Why does Richard trust him? Because he knows how far York will go, and he knows that the very thing that York has just said, which is it's utterly outrageous what you're doing, shows York's commitment to the rules of inheritance and to the sacred status of the king. So York has just said, you're doing absolutely the wrong thing. And Richard said, says, see, I know I can trust him. <laughs> he turns out not to be quite right, but almost right. It's a miscalculation, but not a grave. Well, I mean, it turns out to have grave consequences. <laughs> but it's not, it's not as far as um, calculation goes. It's not a terribly, it's not an insane miscalculation. Um, he thought he had the 60 votes there. Um, and he had reason to think it. Um, and so York pulled a Lieberman. That happens. Um, now, it's... Look, it's, it's always helpful to see, to see how much um, history repeats Shakespeare.
History may not repeat itself, but it does repeat Shakespeare a lot. <laughs> um, okay, so we, have, we still have a couple of minutes. So now, let's go to Act 1, Scene 1. What you'll see in the first, I don't know how many scenes of the play, this is part of the very great construction or very careful construction of this play, is that we alternate between public and private scenes almost without exception. You get a public scene, then you get a private scene that explains the public scene, then you get a public scene, then you get a private scene that explains the public scene, and so on. Um, I'll probably have occasion to talk about The Godfather a lot, so I'll say why now, which is that Coppola explicitly and openly and extensively thought of The Godfather movies as his remakes of Shakespeare. He read Shakespeare a lot as he was making all three of the movies, and he thought of himself as doing the same sort of thing with the same plot dynamics and character dynamics as what goes on in Shakespeare's plays of political struggle. Um, and so it's useful to have that as a comparison also. And in The Godfather, you have public scenes. If, if people know um, The Godfather 2, which don't even admit, don't even look at me to admit that you don't know it, um, the Godfather 2 begins with a very great party where a senator is talking about how much he likes Michael Corleone. Um, and it's all, oh, it's wonderful. They like each other. And isn't it nice that the state of Nevada is so welcoming to an Italian immigrant family from, from New York? And then the second scene of The Godfather 2 is inside the house in Lake Tahoe. And he's utterly contemptuous of them. Um, and tells them just, just the, the senator is completely contemptuous of the Corleones. Um, and that's a Shakespearean dynamic. You first get the scene for public consumption, and then you get the private scene behind that truth. Here in the public scene, what do we have? Just to say it in a sentence, we have Bolingbroke, Gaunt's son, saying someone killed Gloucester, and I'm sure it was Mowbray. Um, and you have to punish him for it, because by killing Gloucester, he went against you. Now, Bolingbroke and Gaunt, of course, know that it was Richard who had Gloucester killed. But the public accusation is that it's Mowbray and not Richard. So we get an official public accusation being made in Act 1, Scene 1. And then the reason behind that public accusation is revealed to us in Act 1, Scene 2. Act 1, Scene 1 is a scene of public pressure and public and blackmail that doesn't look like blackmail, but that looks like respect. But Act 1, Scene 2 tells you what's just happened in Act 1, Scene 1. Okay, finish the play for Tuesday, um, and we will continue then. Tuesday is when there'll be a quiz. I should have said this the first day of class, but the quizzes are always going to be on the day that you should have finished the play that we're doing.